Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Genesis Church. I want to thank you so much for cooperating with us and being here a few minutes early so that we could get started uh, right away. You know, so many times we, we do music at the beginning and people are wandering in and getting their coffee and getting their bagel and things like that. And I, I love that we can do that, but every once in a while I think it's cool if we could just all be together at the same time and just get right into the Word of God. So that's what I want to do. I just want to get right into the Word of God uh, this morning. Hopefully a couple of funny videos uh, and one very serious video and very cool video uh, helped you into that mood. My name's Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis Church. I'm so glad that you joined us this morning. Uh, maybe you've heard the story of Christopher Dennis. Uh, anybody, does that name ring a bell to anybody? Christopher Dennis uh, is a, lives his life as a Superman impersonator. In fact, there was a movie made about his life uh, a couple of years ago uh, called Confessions of a Superhero. And he spends his days on Hollywood Boulevard posing for pictures with tourists who want to get their picture taken with Superman. It, it all started a couple years ago when Dennis, who's a, a struggling actor, uh, was waiting tables, and one of his customers said, you know, you kind of remind me of Christopher Reeves. Christopher Reeves, of course, the late actor who played Superman in the 1980s movies. And so uh, Dennis bought a cheap Superman costume and started hanging out on Hollywood Boulevard and posing with tourists in his spare time, people who wanted to get their picture taken with Superman. His fascination with Superman, though, quickly became an obsession and eventually took over his life. His small L.A. apartment is now filled with over 15,000 pieces of Superman memorabilia. And when he decided to get married, he and his wife chose the city of Metropolis, Illinois, uh, to get married in because of its name and because they could get married uh, under this giant Superman statue and he could wear his Superman uniform. If you can imagine, ladies, I'm sorry, Actually, unfortunately, though, the marriage didn't last, as Christopher Dennis's now ex-wife explained, you know, when you marry Chris, you marry his collection. There's nothing more important to him than his Superman collection. Hey, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, it's hard. Saving the universe is lonely work. It's hard being Superman. You know, I didn't even know this was a thing, this, this dressing up and getting your picture taken uh, with tourists on Hollywood Boulevard. But this week, I saw, this is a real headline. I saw this headline. Maybe you saw this too. Chewbacca and Freddy Krueger break up fight between Mr. Incredible and Batgirl. The, headline, the, the story says the headline really says it all, doesn't it? And, of course, you can see where's Waldo's in there, too. And so there's this whole uh, slew of characters that hang out on Hollywood Boulevard, get their pictures taken with tourists. And apparently, uh, Mr. Incredible and Batgirl had an argument over whose territory was whose. And so Chewbacca and Freddy Krueger had to stand in. I have to tell you, I would never want Freddy Krueger to break up a fight that I was involved in. I'll just say that. The question I think all of this raises is this. Can you take imitation too far? And the answer, I think, is it depends on who you're imitating, right? So if you have your Bibles, open them to Ephesians 5.1. If you you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you that looks like this. You're welcome to use that one. Uh, It's on page 816 in this Bible, 816. If you have your own Bible, uh, you can find your own page. Uh, But uh, Ephesians 5.1 is where we're going to start. But we're in this series called Identity Crisis. We're in week 7 of 8. It's an 8-week series talking about the book of Ephesians. And I was thinking this morning as I was um, looking up this chapter again that this This whole book of Ephesians is like uh, four pages long in this Bible, and we're spending eight weeks on it. That's a pretty in-depth study, and hopefully it's been helpful for you. But what we've been talking about is how if you're a follower of Jesus, we know that there are people in this room who aren't Christians, who uh, aren't followers of Jesus, but if you're a follower of Jesus, your identity is found in Christ. 
that, that we noted early on in this series that Ephesians isn't actually a book, even though we call it a book of the Bible. It's actually a letter. It's a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church he planted in, a, in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And in this letter, he uses the word or the phrase in Christ or in him or some version of that something like 36 times in this short four-page letter. Now, he's reminding us as we read that our identity doesn't come from what we've done, it isn't in who we were, but that our identity comes from being in Christ. And if you remember, if you were here uh, in the first four weeks of this series, he spends the first three chapters just talking about this identity, that our identity, if we're Christians, our identity is in Christ. He talks about uh, that for three chapters before he starts talking about how we should live. And so there's this who we are. And then based out of that, there's how we should live. And so, but by now, by chapter 5, we're well into the how we should live part of the letter. And so he starts like this. Ephesians 5, 1 uh, says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, your version may say, follow God's example. But most translations say, use this word imitators, and I'll tell you why in just a minute, okay? Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, you think it's hard being Superman. All right, try being an imitator of God. How difficult does that sound? How could we do that? I mean, is it even possible for a human to do that? Can a human be an imitator of God? Well, I want you to see something here as you read that Paul is not telling us to be an imitator of the God-like aspects of God, okay? Because God, we know, is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. Can any of you be everywhere at once? Working moms, can you be everywhere at once? Don't you wish you could, right? We can't do that. God has that character we can't imitate. He's omniscient, right? He, he knows all. In other words, uh, you know, he, he, he knows everything that's going on. We don't, as much as we like to think we know it all, we don't know it all. We can't imitate that. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful, in other words. Um, so why would Scripture, which we believe is... God-breathed, God-inspired, and useful for teaching. Why would Scripture tell us, command us, this is a command from Paul, be imitators of God. Why would it command us to do something that it's not possible for us to do? Well, exactly, it wouldn't, right? And the word that the Apostle Paul uses here, this is why I like imitators, that, that version better. The word that he uses here is the, is the Greek word mimetai. That word mimetai probably sounds familiar to you. It's where we get our English word, the English word mime, Right? So to imitate, to act like, it's where we get the English word mimic. And if you're, you went to school in the 70s and 80s like I did, maybe you remember the mimeograph. Do you remember the mimeograph, the little purple thing, that, uh, the ditto machine you know, that, that, that copied things? That's where we get those words. The idea is to copy closely, to, to repeat another person's speech or actions or behavior or mannerisms. Paul is saying, get to know your heavenly father so that you can echo his actions, the way he behaves. But how can we imitate someone we can't see? Well, fortunately, God sent us a model. He sent us someone to live as an example for us, uh, to show us how we can live. And he sent us that in the person of Jesus Christ. Because even though we believe that Jesus was fully God, Scripture tells us, and is pretty clear on this, that he lived his life on earth as fully human. That he faced the same struggles and temptations that we face. That he had the same limitations even that we have. In fact, Hebrews reminds us, Hebrews 2.17 says, For this reason, he had to be, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, like his brothers, he's talking about, uh, fully human in every way, 
in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for sins of the people. The, the, The author is saying here that if Jesus wasn't fully human, that he wouldn't be a good sacrifice that he had to be fully human. And, and because of that, the author reminds us a little bit later in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize, empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet who did not sin. And yet Jesus himself said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And more than anyone else, Jesus was a reflection of our heavenly Father. He lived life like our Father. So if we want to be imitators of God, we need to look no further than to be an imitator of the life of Jesus. In fact, uh, 1 John 2.6 says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Some versions will say, must walk as Jesus walked. And so this is a great reminder, I think. This is a great place to stop, pause, and say, this is a reminder that what we're talking about this morning is really for Christians, That as we talk about how we're supposed to live, this is for people who are claiming to be in Christ. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. One of the mistakes, biggest mistakes that we make as Christians and as the church is to take the way that we're called to live and to project that on the entire world and say, you know what, the entire world should live like this. Well, yes, but not because we say they should live like this, right? But because we want the world to live like this because we want them to know Christ. We want them to know that they have the Father that loves them, that's crazy about them, and has shown them the way to live. And so when we take our way of living and project it on everybody else who doesn't have a relationship with God, we are doing a major disservice to our Heavenly Father. But because we are in Christ, because we who are in Christ, we should be imitators of Christ. So what does that mean? Do we need to walk around in sandals and preach from every hilltop and heal the sick and drive out demons? Well... Not necessarily. I mean, not all of us have all of those gifts. But again, Paul uses the word here. The word is mimetai, to, to imitate. We are to mimic his behaviors. And fortunately for us, Paul doesn't just leave us hanging with that and say, now go, just do, go do what Jesus did. Instead, he gives us a list. In fact, if you read down uh, in Ephesians 5 through all the way through verse 20, what you'll see start to formulate is two lists. You'll see two lists. There are, uh, the first list, I think, is easy to pick out. And so what we've done... If you got your note card I had right here, you got your, your message note card when you walked in. Uh, on the back, we've actually got two lists for you, so you can follow right along. There are two lists. The first list, which is probably the easier one to pick out, is the, the, the list that says you should not. And so Paul is telling us to be an imitator of God. Right? If you're going to be an imitator of God, here's a list. Here's some things that you should not do. Do not, number one, is engage in sexual immorality. He put this right at the top of the list. Why did he do that? Is it to grab attention? Is it the most important? Is it because that's what he sees and hears is going on in Ephesus, what he sees the Ephesians struggling with? Not sure. But know this. This is one thing that Jesus never engaged with. In fact, probably more than any other man who ever lived, Jesus had an incredible amount of respect for women. He elevated women to a much higher level than they were elevated in that society. If you read the words of Jesus, if you follow the life of Jesus, what you see is a man who treats every woman he meets like it was a sister. And so you see this person, this man in Jesus, who who walks around in this culture that is saturated with this idea that women are objects, 
that women are property, that women are to be uh, used and abused as men see fit. And here is this Jesus that comes in and he elevates them to a higher level in every interaction you see in scripture where Jesus has this with women. That's why it drives me crazy when people say that Christianity degrades women, that Christianity uh, tries to put women in their place because whenever anybody says that, they're not looking at the person of Jesus Christ. They're looking at us as Christians in the way that we have misinterpreted and misapplied scripture as it applies to women. But we know that Jesus had a high respect for women, and so we know that he did not engage in sexual immorality. But there it is right there in Ephesians 5.3. Now, the very first thing on the list, Paul says this, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. I don't think I have to define okay, sexual immorality for you. But let's just say there are a lot of things that are acceptable in today's society that are not in keeping with God's design for human sexuality. In fact, you can watch most primetime TV shows and see more than a hint of sexual immorality. You can listen to most of the popular music on the radio today and you can hear more than a hint of sexual immorality. But Paul reminds us, for God's holy people, okay, for us, for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who have um, who've chosen to follow Jesus, there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Now, I don't know what that means for you. Maybe it means we need to change what we watch on television. Uh, maybe it means that we need to stop going to that website. Maybe it means that we need to stop listening to that music. But whatever it is for you, you probably know in your heart where there's a hint of sexual immorality in your life. Paul says there should not even be a hint. Along with that, number two, he says, don't be greedy. Again, right there in verse three, he says, uh, or, or, or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Greed is improper for God's holy people. That's a big one. That's this big one, especially right here in Hamilton County. I mean, in the suburbs of the United States in 2014, greed is rampant. And you know, this is one thing that in my three years on staff here and my time as an elder at Genesis before that, I've had people come up and confess all kinds of sin to me and talk to me about things that they're involved with and things that, that I would have never guessed that they were involved with. But I have never, in all my time in ministry, I've never had anybody come up to me and said, you know what, Steve, I'm really struggling with greed. That, that I just can't get enough. I mean, I, I can't get enough money. I can't get enough stuff. I know I have a lot, but I want more. But I can see it. I know you can see it. It happens all the time around here. But Paul says that is not for God's holy people. Number three is this. He says, do not speak foolishly. Don't speak foolishly. Ephesians 5, 4, nor should there be any obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. I'm not sure why Christians think it's okay to cuss. But I know several people who believe it's not wrong to use profane language. They can uh, look me in the eye and tell me that they don't think that's a sin. I I don't. I don't cuss. I I have in the past, although not for many years. Uh, I I still know the words. (laughs) I still hear them from time to time. I just choose not to use them. I never bring them out of storage, okay? Because I believe, Scripture tells us, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? So what comes out of your mouth is what's living in your heart. And I know that if that was coming out of my mouth, it means that it's living in my heart. And I don't want that stuff living in my heart. That stuff's just not in my heart anymore. It's been driven out by the Holy Spirit. Now, I love a good joke as much as the next guy. But not if it's at the expense of another ethnic group or, or race or if it's at the expense of women. If it can't be told in mixed company, that's not for God's holy people. That doesn't mean that you know it's not 
It doesn't happen. It, sure, it happens. It doesn't mean that for society that's wrong. But for God's holy people, for people who are in Christ, that is not right. That's, I'm not trying to be judgmental here. I, I didn't say it. Scripture said it. In fact, it gets stronger. Ephesians 5.5 5 says, for, though, for, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater. Do you ever think of that? If you're greedy, if you use coarse language, you're an idolater? That you're putting something else above God? None of those people have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, does this mean that you say a cuss word and you're out? Well, no. It's not pointing out that certain sins are unforgivable. Instead, it's pointing out character issues. It's saying for God's people, for God's holy people, this should be your character. These are issues that when they're prevalent in someone's life, when someone has uh, one or more of these character traits and they are unrepentant about them, Paul is saying they're probably not in Christ. These issues identify them. They define them. Their identity is not in Christ. It's in being an idolater. You know, pornography has become my God. Adultery has become my God. Uh, Paul, Paul is saying, you know, greed has become my God. Paul's saying, if that's the case, this person has no inheritance in the kingdom of God because God's not their God. Something else is. Now, here's why this is so important. Because we all know people who claim to be Christians but don't live like Christ. And if you're here today... And if you're not a Christian and you know people like that, they probably drive you crazy. You know, you think, how is it that I'm a good person? I try to be nice to people. I don't cheat. I don't look at the wrong stuff. I don't covet other people's things. And yet these people believe because they've prayed some prayer that they're going to heaven someday. And they believe that I'm not. It's just not fair. And to you, I say, you're right. You're right. Now, I have to be careful here because it's not through people's actions that they'll be condemned. It's not through your actions that you'll be saved. But Paul says those people are not in Christ, and Christ is not in them. There is no inheritance for people who that, that is their character. So number four is this. Don't deal in darkness. Ephesians 5.11 says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, I don't know what you consider darkness, uh, maybe for you, it's uh, you think of voodoo and witchcraft, certainly a lot of darkness. If you've ever been to one of our mission trips to Haiti, maybe you've seen some of that. And maybe you've seen it in your own life, in your own neighborhood. That's darkness for sure. Maybe for your family, it's Halloween. Like I, We don't celebrate Halloween because we just think that's darkness, and that's, that's fine. That's a fine opinion to have. Uh, or, or maybe for you, it's a, it's a TV show. Or it's, uh, it's song lyrics. There are song lyrics that are dark. Maybe it's The Walking Dead or, or Twilight or Vampire Diaries or so, some other entertainment like that. Paul doesn't specifically tell us what it means to deal in darkness. We don't know that. But he gives us a hint when he says that the deeds of darkness are fruitless. They are the fruitless deeds of darkness. They are deeds that bear no fruit. And in, in another letter, a, a letter called Galatians, which is also in the New Testament, Paul tells us about the kind of fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. He says that that fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That, that when the Holy Spirit is living inside us, that's the kind of fruit that we produce. So we can draw the conclusion that anything that we're uh, pursuing that's not producing that kind of fruit is a fruitless deed. It's a fruitless deed of darkness. Paul says don't do that. If you want to be an imitator of God, you should pursue things that produce that kind of fruit in your life. Don't waste your time on things that don't produce fruit in your life. Number five, he says this, don't get drunk. 
Don't get drunk. If you want to know what the Bible has to say about alcohol, here it is, Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, for some of you, this is confusing. You're like, you know what? I like to have a drink or three, but I don't really get drunk, and I I have no idea what debauchery is, but I know I've never been debauched. And so (laughs) I don't know what that's telling me, but this passage doesn't speak to the goodness or evil of alcohol itself, although some people have interpreted that way. But it only speaks to how we use it, how we use alcohol. And this is the problem we sometimes have with so much of Scripture. We we don't really read it and study it and seek the heart of God in this issue. We can believe that Scripture is left open to interpretation of what we can do about that. We can can, uh, believe that Scripture has left it open to us for how to live. But, but this is why God has given us the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, you have his Holy Spirit living in you, and he can guide you in those decisions. And so some of you know, even as Christians, some of you know that this issue is a problem for you. Because somebody somewhere along the line has told you that you drink too much. And if somebody's ever told you that, I'm going to tell you they didn't tell you that the first time they had that thought. Because it's really, really difficult to go up to somebody who you love, who you care about, and tell them they have a problem. And so they thought about it, and they prayed about it, and they worried about it, and they were going to tell you one time before, but they couldn't get up the courage. And then finally they came to you and said, you drink too much, and you laughed at them. Or you told them you didn't have a problem. But for some of you, it's a problem. And some of you know, because every time you have a bad day, your Facebook status is, Mama needs some wine. (laughs) Now, I know that people say that, and they mean it in a funny way, but I'm going to tell you, if you've ever thought, I need a glass of wine to make it through this day, You've got a problem. You need to talk to somebody about it. And, and if you want to talk to me about it, I can sit you in that right direction. Or if you want to talk to a friend about it. But if, if that's a problem for you, if you've thought that I need alcohol to make it through this day, you need to talk to somebody about that. Paul says, in effect, he says, don't rely on alcohol to turn your day around. Look, again, in, in my years in ministry, you know, I've never had anybody come up to me and say, you know what? My life was really headed in the wrong direction, but then I started drinking. And now things are so much better. Nobody's ever said that to me. So that's a list, an abbreviated list of what Paul gives us for what not to do. And if you're here today and you never come to church, you think that's exactly why I never come to church because it's just some guy up on stage telling me what I'm not supposed to do, all the things I'm doing wrong. And, and that's, that's not what I need to hear every Sunday. That's not very uplifting, right? That doesn't bring you any closer to God. It's just uh, some guy preaching at me about all the things that I need to get fixed. But that's why I love this chapter in Ephesians, because that's not the highlight. The list of things we're not supposed to do is not the highlight. But instead, Paul is actually going to give us a longer list. It's a list of things we should do. He says, so if you're going to be an imitator of God, here are some things that you should do. And these are mixed in with the other things. But Paul says, uh, here's how you should live. It's not just longer list, but it's much more telling, I think, about the character of God. And so Paul says, first, if you're going to be an imitator of Christ, you should walk in love. Ephesians 5.2 says, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In his humanity... Jesus gave the perfect example of how we are to treat people. That every person is God's creation. We said a couple of weeks ago that you've never met a person for whom Christ didn't go to the cross for. As you read about and study the life and ministry of Jesus, what you see is that time after time, he has compassion for people who approach him with stupid questions. He he loves his enemies, even to the point of forgiving them and healing them. 
And if we are to be imitators of Christ, Paul reminds us, this is where we start. We walk in the way of love just as Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. You know, last week as we talked about forgiveness, uh, Paul was here, Paul, Paul Mumal, our lead pastor, and he asked us to think about that one person that we can't forgive. You remember that if you were here? He said, who's that one person you can't forgive? And for some of us, it was really difficult even to think about that person or to think about their name or to see their picture in our head because whenever they come to mind, we feel like our face gets a little hot, right? And our temper wells up in us. And sometimes there's a little bit of sourness that comes into our mouth, into our throat, and we think, I'm never going to be able to forgive that person. Just remember at those times that Jesus didn't feel that way about you, that he gave himself up for you as a sacrifice. And in response to that, that we should walk in love. If we are in Christ, we should walk in love. Number two is this, we should walk, live, live as children of light. Ephesians 5, 8, and 9 says, For you were once darkness. If you are a Christian, you may remember a time in your life when you were darkness or when you were in the darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. There's a contrast here that Paul makes between darkness and light. And when most people think of the life of Jesus, they think of him as a bringer of light, right? As someone who illuminates the word of God, who, who brings light into dark places. But often when we think of Christians, don't we sometimes just think of the gloomiest people in the world? I mean, you think about people you know who have been Christians their whole life, and are they happy people, genuinely? I mean, some people, yeah. But universally, is that true? Paul says you should live like children of light, that you should make it your goal in this life to shine the light of Jesus into every place you go, that that people should see you coming, and they should want to be around you, that you should act like Jesus did you a favor on the cross. And that you're going to do your best to respond to that by spreading his joy around everywhere. Number three is this. Paul says, if you're going to be an imitator of God, you should walk as the wise. Walk as the wise. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. There are many places in scripture where there's a contrast drawn between wise and foolish. And this is one of them. Other places remind us that the wise inherit honor, but a fool only gets shame. That a wise son brings his joy, brings joy to his father, but a fool brings grief to his mother. I don't know why they associate wisdom with fathers and grief with mothers, okay? But but the mom is the one that always gets to clean up the mess, right? So a fool brings grief to his mother. Uh, and that, that a pa- compa- uh, companion of fools suffers harms. The wi- one who walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools suffers harms. Those are all in Proverbs. And, and Paul reminds us, you know, there's, there's not much good to say in the Bible about fools, and so Paul reminds us that we should walk as the wise, that we should live as the wise, that we should discern what pleases God and try to live that way. And then to go one step further, this passage says this, and this is number four, we should make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. It's a curious phrase. The days are evil. How can a day be evil? I mean, it's just a period of time, right? And in fact, there are other places in the Bible that call the days good. Like, you know, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, right? The day is good, but it says the days are evil. And, and in fact, um, Paul is reminding us that there is opportunity for evil in every day. There, there are two kinds of evil that we can see in our days. There's a passive evil, the, uh, the deeds of darkness, wasting time with foolish pursuits and things that don't move us closer to a relationship with God. There, there's that. 
But there's active evil too. You know, Paul seems to be reminding us in this verse that there are dark forces working against us. We're going to talk more about this this next week, but there's an enemy that we have. If you are in Christ, you have an enemy. And he's a real enemy, and he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And if you don't make the most of every opportunity, you're letting him steal a little bit of your time and your influence. You know, a couple of weeks ago, over fall break, my wife and I, uh, my family and I went down to Orlando, Florida for a week. And um, we got the opportunity to stay in a condo that was, uh, a friend had some connections, and so we were able to stay in there. And, um, but we decided to go to the timeshare presentation. Um, because they were going to give us a killer deal on these wristbands that let you do everything at the condo complex, let you do the lazy river and the big water slide and the miniature golf and everything. And so we thought they said it only takes 60 minutes. Um, and so you're all laughing because you already know where this is going. Well, I've always known I don't want to buy a timeshare. Um, I don't know if you have timeshares or not. If you do, um, God bless you. Uh, but that's not kind of our thing. We like to go different places and I know he's going to tell me all the ways about, so I just decided right at the beginning that I was just going to say no. I'm just going to tell him no up front, and all throughout the presentation, I'm going to tell him no. The other thing it said is it's 60 minutes, depending on your level of interest. So I said, I know how to do this. We just won't be interested at all, and then 60 minutes will be done. And so uh, from the time I first met the guy, I was, I was hostile to his idea. Uh, I didn't want to talk about any advantages that it might have to buy into his um, beautiful condominium complex. And so every question he asked me was just met with um, resistance. He'd say, can you see the advantages maybe of having a place that was like this? No, not really. (laughs) Well, surely you can look at the seven swimming pools we have in this complex and think your family would really enjoy that. Eh, They might might like that. I don't know, but probably not. (laughs) And so throughout this whole thing, I'm like, I'm saying no, and I'm saying no, and I'm saying no. And finally, after two hours, he brings his manager in. You know, to try to twist my arm a little more. And the whole time, I'm, I'm like, I, I can't believe you said this would be over in 60 minutes. And it was horrible, horrible use of time. And it was, I, I was glad that we got the, uh, the little wristbands and things. But, um, but at the end, he, they both stood up, he and his manager, and said, you know, if you're not going to buy anything, you just shouldn't come. And I was like, well, you shouldn't tell the guy at the front desk to offer me this great thing if you don't want me to come. You know, I told you. you know, and I said, you said it was going to be 60 minutes. And his boss said, well, it's 60 minutes depending on your interest. And I said, um, Alejandro was the guy who was trying to sell us a condo. Alejandro, have I ever expressed any interest at all in buying this? But I walked away from there and I thought about that because they do, if you've ever been to this, they really try to make you feel bad. They try to make you feel guilty, don't they, about, uh, well, don't you want this for your family? And don't you want something you can hand down? And, uh, you know, all this, all this stuff. And I was, just, I was really uh, irritated with him. But as I walked away, I realized that there was this man that was here who didn't know Jesus. And I may have been the only Christian he talked to that day. And what kind of impression did I leave on him? That all I was about was saying no. And that I was just hostile to everything that he had to offer. And could I have done a better job? of teaching him what it really means to be a Christian and not just been a hostile guy that said no all the time. I felt like I didn't make the most of that opportunity. I want to make the most of every opportunity. Number five is this. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. This is a contrast we've already talked about, but, but with getting drunk on wine. In uh, that verse, it says, uh, don't fill yourself up with spirits, all right, but with the one Holy Spirit that comes from God. It's an interesting command because the truth is that you can't fill yourself up with the Holy Spirit. All right, but you can move everything else out of this way and allow him to come in and take up residence in your life. And for those of you who aren't Christians, this is the one command that you need to take the most seriously. That, that God wants to send the Holy Spirit to live in you 
and to lead your life, but it won't happen unless you're willing to admit that you've messed up, that you need forgiveness in your life. He's already sent his son Jesus to die for you, to take the punishment for you. You just need to acknowledge that, yep, you know, that was for me. You know, I accept that gift, and, and God, will, God sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of you, to guide you and start that process of transformation and start that process of making you more and more like his son. Number six is this. Paul says, sing in passionate worship. Ephesians 5.19 says, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. You know, one of the things that we're most passionate about as a, as a church is worship. We, we always talk about, we, we don't really roll this out to everybody. We have five things that are our areas of focus as a church, and worship is one of them. And we do that through the study of his word and prayer. Uh, we do it through the giving of tithes and offerings, which we usually do at the beginning of service. We're going to do here in just a few minutes. And so if you have that, you might get that prepared now so you don't have to do it during the music at the end. And we do it every Sunday through music. And so we, we started, uh, we, we stand and we sing songs and we, uh, we sing songs of worship. And if you're not a Christian, it may seem really weird to you to see people walking around and passionately singing, singing to a God that you can't see. And I know that there are people in this church that come here because the music's so good. And I know that because you tell me, somebody tells me every week, the music here was really good today. And I always say, thank you. (laughs) I had everything to do with that. And some of you come here because the music's still good and you still don't get it. You still don't get who we're singing to. But worship music will never truly make sense to you until you understand and have a relationship with the one who's being worshipped. And so if you you like to listen, but you're not much on belting it out or raising your hands or dancing or singing, uh, you should know that that's a value here. And, and, And this passage, among others, is why. I, some of you know that Outside the walls of this church, we send 10% of everything that you give in your tithes and offerings. We send a tenth of it back outside the walls of this church to other organizations and missionaries who are doing God's work in other parts of the world, uh, locally, nationally, and internationally. And one of the couples that we support are uh, Carl and Daniel Gidley. You may know the Gidleys. They used to come to our Noblesville campus a while back. And they are, serve on staff with crew at Harvard University. And they uh, sent their prayer letter this month, and I saw this, and I just thought this was so good about singing passionately um, uh, sing, sing passionately in worship. Danielle, it says, Danielle met Jamie during the first week of classes and was pleasantly surprised when she signed up for our annual fall retreat. I couldn't believe she wanted to go spend a whole weekend away with hundreds of Christian students. Now, she, she's not a Christian. Dan, uh, Dan, uh, Jamie's not. During a campus sharing time, uh, toward the end of the weekend, Jamie was one of the first to speak up. Jamie, the non-Christian, she announced that the group Uh, She wasn't a Christian, but she was so glad she came that she had been watching the students as they sang worship songs that night. And she suspected the only way they could be singing with so much passion was if God really did exist. What an exciting step forward in her faith journey. Think about the message you're sending as a follower of Christ when you're in this room and you are passionately singing in worship to the God that you love and that's crazy about you. You're sending a message to people around you about what you believe and what's important to you. And so today, if you, if you feel like you missed it, you know, because we didn't have the music at the beginning, you should know that one of the things we wanted to do today was just have an extended period of worship music at the end and a time uh, coming up here. How will you respond to that? Will you sing in passionate worship as an imitator of Christ, giving praise and thanks for the way he saved you? I hope so. Number seven, the last one is this, give thanks. 
Ephesians 5.20 said, always giving thanks to the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the one thing that probably distinguishes the heart of an imitator of God from someone who's just going through the motions. Someone who's always thankful, who in every situation is able to see that every good and perfect thing comes from heaven. Somebody who doesn't bemoan their circumstances, that in every situation they're grateful for the blessings they do have. You know, some people call it an attitude of gratitude. Psalm 100 says this, says it this way, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And it's so easy to look at our lives and the things that are going on right now, right this minute in our lives and think, you know what? I don't have very much to be thankful for. But scripture wants to get, take us on an eternal perspective and say, you know what? The Lord is good. His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues throughout the generations. And that's just another great reminder that the seeds we're sowing now in our children and our grandchildren, uh, in our neighbors and our friends and our nieces and nephews, those are the seeds that are going to produce fruit in generations to come. And so what are you sowing into your kids? What is the attitude that you're giving to your kids, to your grandkids, to your nieces and nephews, to the kids in the neighborhood around you? What are you showing them that it's like to live in Christ? Are they seeds of gratitude or seeds of bitterness, seeds of despair? You know, a few weeks ago, my wife and I spent a day at the Indianapolis Art Museum. I, I love to go and look around and take in the paintings and see the incredible talent uh, that's able to capture in so many different ways the world around us. And I don't know much about art. I didn't study it in school. But one thing I notice is that every painter, every artist has a distinctive style, right, that, that's in that style. You can tell that they came from a school. They, they learned their craft somewhere. And even though I know little about art, I'm not an art critic, I can look at a painting and I can kind of tell um, what school of art that painter came from, right? They came from the Impressionist school or the Pointillist school or the Neoclassical school. Now, how can you tell? Well, every painter basically starts out copying their favorite works, right? They start out imitating the great painters that came before them, their influences. And so as a result of that, even after years and years of study and practice, their, their work still looks like it came from a certain school of influence. Well, in your life, you have the chance to learn from two different schools. You can take your actions and your behavior from the school of the world, trusting in your own possessions, leaning on your own wisdom, following the path that you've carved, or you can learn to live from the school of God, trusting in the Lord with all your heart, leaning not on your own understanding, following him in all of your ways, and trusting him to guide you on the straight path. And people are going to notice People are going to be able to look at your life, your friends, your family, your neighbors and coworkers. They will look at your life and they can tell where you're going to school. There's a story in Acts chapter 4 of the disciples, two of the disciples of Jesus, Peter and John. This is not long after Jesus died. And they're brought in front of the ruling body, the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body of the Jewish people. And they go on to very boldly tell this story of what they've gone through. They share the testimony of how they walked with their friend Jesus, but he was killed and he gave them the power to heal and you need to turn your life around and follow him. And they were so sure and so bold in their approach that the author says this in Acts 4.13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but when people look at my life, that's what I want them to see. 
I spent a lot of years trying to make a name for myself, you know, trying to carve my own path, trying to build my own career, trying to make my own fortune, only to be frustrated by my inability to really have much influence or significance in my life. It's only when I'm following Jesus and acting on his behalf can I see the difference that my life can make. When people look at my life, I want them to see that I was brought up in the school of God. I want them to look at me and, as an imitator of God. I want them to look at my life and say, you know, Steve, he's an unschooled, ordinary guy. But I can tell he's been with Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus uh, to, to be an example for us, to show us how to live, to, be, to live life as you intended humanity to live it. God, scripture says that Jesus was the second Adam and that as Adam came into this perfect world and sinned, that your son Jesus came into a sin-soaked world uh, but was able to not sin. And that he lived a life that we should look to as an example. And so, God, today, just all of us who are in Christ look to that life as an example. We thank you that you've laid that out for us so beautifully in Ephesians 5, that you've given us what not to do. But, God, more importantly, you've given us what to do. Uh, Sometimes it's so hard for us as we look at our lives to go, well, I know I'm not supposed to do that and I'm not supposed to do that. But really, what should I be doing with my time? And so thank you for that example. Thank you for those words, guys. We, we, we want to be like you. We want to follow you. We want to see you look to you and trust you in every aspect of our lives. And so God, as we go through our life and we try to be imitators of yours, we want to first and foremost uh, go back to one of those points that I talked about. We want to come to you and sing in passionate worship. We're we're so thankful for uh, your word and that you've given us music as a way to express ourselves and express our feelings. And so as we come to you now, God, as we come before you as a church body, we just hope that uh, this sound will be pleasing to your ears. We thank you for the gift of music and for the gift of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.